Many individuals try to find success on a daily basis. But what defines this success? Where does it come from? When you find a passion in your life and pursue this passion, everything can come together to form success. This is Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. Our guests will motivate you to take the next step to your success. Now, here's your host, David Wallach. Good morning, y'all, and welcome to our weekly episode of Taking Care of Business. My guest this morning and I were at the same group of executive at the executive committee group called Tech 303 for a very short period of time. Both of us left the group. I left after 10 years. Uh, I felt I needed a little break. My guest left shortly after he joined, and later we'll try to understand why. My guest today is Mick McNulty, managing partner at Pillar 4 Pillar 4 Partners, an energy-focused private equity and advisory firm with global reach with offices in Calgary and London. Good morning, Mick. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for being my guest this wonderful morning. Uh, finally, we have some nice weather in Calgary. The snow has stopped. Let's hope it lasts. <laughs> yeah, well, we're praying. For it. We're at daylight saving, so it's the first time of spring for us. Um, so, Mick, you know, in the first few months, I always ask my Calgary-based guest a few questions that have nothing to do with the show itself. It has to do a lot with Calgary. Uh-oh. And, um, you know, the Winter uh, Paralympics are now being played in Korea, and we just finished the uh, Winter Olympics in South Korea. And what I know about the 1988 Olympics that happened here is there was an Englishman that made a huge impact on the Olympics here, and they even made a movie about him two years ago. Eddie the Eagle. Eddie the Eagle. So what do you remember from the 1988? Were you here or were you still in England? And what do you remember about Eddie? Well, that's kind of weird. I, I was actually here. I was actually, at the time, I was working for Slumberger, and uh, I was here on a two-year contract. Uh, basically started in 86 and left at the end of 88. Uh, so, to be honest, I wasn't even aware there was Olympics happening uh, in Calgary when I accepted the job. And so when we got here and uh, found the excitement that started, you know, really back in 1986 and uh, that whole volunteer movement was, uh, was, um, was taking off, um, we, were, we were blown away by the excitement that this was, uh, that this, that this was happening. Um, and so, uh, of course, you know when uh, you know most of the most of the events um, that happen in the Winter Olympics, the the Brits don't even know anything about. <laughs> I think uh, back then the only time we'd ever really watch it was ice skating, and I think um, the '84 Olympics, uh, Torvald and Dean had won the gold medal in um, ice ice dancing, uh, and so that was really our, our whole breadth of knowledge really about the Winter Olympics. And of course, when uh, when it started here, and this um, this funny-looking guy, <laughs> weird Englishman, <laughs> yeah, this weird-looking Englishman is taking off from the the, the high uh, ski jump. Uh, we were as amazed as anybody, and uh, quite uh, embarrassed, to be honest. <laughs> I, I don't think he he got in last. I think he was one before the... Uh, the I thought last. he was last. But yeah, uh, I think someone was disqualified. Maybe, maybe someone was disqualified, <laughs> yes. I see. But what was the kind of uh, at home, back home, what did you hear from uh, England? Embarrassment. Really? Really. 
I see. Uh, and that, was, uh, that leads me to the next question, which is a more on a serious note. And, and you being a businessman here for many, many years, holding different positions, and, you, you know, you just mentioned that you're here since 86. Um, there is a debate right now whether as a city we should host the 20, or at least bid for the 2026 Olympics, Winter Olympics. And as a businessman, as a Calgarian now, what is your opinion, opinion? Should we or shouldn't we bid for the Winter Olympics with the facilities we have here and around, you know, around the Calgary area, southern Alberta area? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think it's uh, w- well known that, um, you know, most cities that host Olympics don't actually make a lot of money. In fact, they make no money and uh, end up racking up uh, a lot of debt. Um, now, if that debt, uh, if the payback on that debt is that you end up with some world-class facilities that people can take advantage of for, for years to come, uh, there is some payback there. Uh, but at the end of the day, the last thing you want to have happen is that uh, ourselves and the future generations have to wear a, a huge amount of debt to pay off for what amounts to two or three weeks of excitement for, uh, for the city. So I think it's a it's a it's a difficult question to to really uh, fathom, unless I mean you need, you need to understand what is it going to cost. I mean, could you do it without building a new hockey arena? Could you do it by using the same uh, facilities that we have? To a certain extent, I think that's true. But if you have to spend you know several billion dollars actually building or rebuilding those facilities, then for a, a small country uh, like Canada and a, you know a city of uh, less than two million people in Calgary. I mean, it's it's probably too big a venture to take on in in, in these days. I see. So uh, you're sitting on the fence, basically. I'm sitting on the fence at <laughs> this one. Okay. So uh, Mick, before we get into your business, and and, and uh, we want to, we already know that you're from England. Thank you. Yeah. If it wasn't me saying about Eddie Eagle, it's probably your accent. Like well, people know about my accent that I wasn't born here as well. Well, I get accused of being from Australia, to be honest. Oh, really? More often than I'm, I'm, I'm told I'm English. So, <laughs> so uh, where in England were you born? Born in London. Okay. Um, in uh, southeast London, uh, a place called Greenwich, which uh, is famous for Greenwich um, Mean Time, of course. Yes. And uh, uh, spent uh, the first few years of my life there, um, and then. Uh, the rest of my life in, in a place just uh, about five miles from Greenwich, uh, called, a place called Abbey Wood, right on the borders of, between uh, London and Kent, uh, and stayed there until um, my uh, late uh, 20s when I um, left uh, London. I was working for Slumberger at the time and went to spend two years in Africa in uh, Gabon in Western Africa. So, uh, born in England, where you've been, you raised there, and uh, what do you kind of remember from a kid growing up in, in London? Oh, yeah, that's a long time ago, David. I'm, I'm getting pretty old now. Yeah, no, that's, London has a long history. So yes, we, we yes indeed. Um, you know, I mean, I was, uh, I was born in 54, so, uh, you know, basically 10 years after the war had ended. Uh, and even even t- into sort of like four, five, six, there were still um, issues that still were around in terms of um, you know poverty, I suppose, mm-hmm. and um, you know lack of you didn't have the same access to um, fresh food and products as as of course we enjoy today. Um, was it still? It was it still kind of recovery after World War Two. It, it was definitely recovery. I think uh, from 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 the standpoint of um, the economy wasn't uh, the strongest. There was there was some rebuilding going on. My father worked in construction, and uh, 
he had to move around quite a bit. Uh, we actually moved out of London for a short period of time to Bristol mm -hmm. uh, for him to, to find work because uh, he couldn't find the work that he needed in, in London. Um, and, and so it was, it was challenging, I think, for uh, kids of our age. But at the time, we didn't know any different. Yeah. Uh, everybody we were, we, we were hung around with uh, were in the same boat. So. And you didn't have computer at home. So did, did, you, did you play football, cricket, or rugby? Uh, funny enough, I, I played football in my spare time, uh, but my school um, only played rugby, so I played <laughs> I played a combination of both. <laughs> I see. Which one you like more? Uh, I enjoyed them both, yeah. um, but my, all my friends uh, in our spare time we played we played football, so that was uh, that was the game of first choice. Okay, so Southeast London. Yeah. Right. Yes. Is this West Ham territory? Not really. Um, the closest, uh, the closest football team was Charlton Athletic, um, okay. and that was my dad's team. Uh, but my aunt supported West Ham United, and at the time they were in the first division, which was the, the highest echelon at that time. And uh, so I was attracted by the by the sort of uh, the first uh, first division, the West Ham, the West Ham, and they had some fabulous players back then. Uh, Bobby Moore is a very famous West Ham player. Jeff Hurst. Jeff Hurst. Yeah. So you were talking 1966. Yeah, I the think the World Cup. Yes, I, my first my first game was uh, probably I think I was it was probably 1963. So I got introduced to Bobby Moore and Jeff Hurst sort of uh, then, and then of course when the World Cup happened in 1966, uh, we were very excited about the <laughs> fact that West Ham basically won the World Cup for England. Well, West Ham is not doing so well this year. Yes, that's true. It's uh, it's a cross that I bear every day of my life. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you a story. Uh, I didn't know you were a West Ham fan. Uh, six years ago, I was in London and I went to watch the game Chelsea West Ham, mm -hmm. and that was the game that Chelsea won three 0 and West Ham was relegated to the second division. <laughs> and I was with my wife and a couple of guys from my office with their wives, and I said to them, you know what? It's England. Let's wait till they take all the fans out and then we'll take the tube when it's a little bit less noisy. Mm -hmm. What I forgot is that they keep the away fans, the, the away fans, which was West Ham, yep. in and we all bought merchandise from the home team, which was Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> so we go on the tube and there's a guy there, double my size and I'm 6'4 and 250 pounds and he was double my size <laughs> and he looks at me and I'm wearing my Chelsea cap and he goes, I hope you die. <laughs> That's a true English football fan. Unfortunately, I can believe it's true. There are some not so nice uh, uh, supporters of West Ham. I see. So, um, any other entrepreneurs in your family, or you kind of you were the black sheep of being an entrepreneur? Well, uh, I became I became an entrepreneur fairly late in life. Yes. I mean, I started life as a as an accountant and uh, um, spent uh, the first few years. Um, in fact, all my career was slumberjay, which which was for eighteen years. Um, I was in the financial field, but I was always drawn more to the business side uh, of uh, of industry rather than sort of the pure accounting. Mm -hmm. I don't particularly enjoy accounting, and I, <laughs> I never actually want to do accounting ever again. <sighs> Um, but my brother was uh, um, an investment banker, um, so you know, fairly entrepreneurial in his own in his own right. Um, but I, I guess I I am the black sheep. I'm the only one that left England and uh, tried to play his trade elsewhere. I see. Um, 
So you graduated high school and uh, went to university? No, in fact, I didn't. Uh, I left uh, uh, grammar school, as it was, uh, as it was in uh, England, uh, with A-levels, uh, which is akin to high school diploma, I suppose. Uh, and at the time, um, very few of my friends were, were going to university. In fact, uh, out of my classmates, uh, probably less than a third actually went on to university. So. It was almost expected that you'd go and work. Um, you know, I came from a, a large family, a working class family. There were five children. And, um, you know, I think we, at the age of 18, it was expected that you would start to contribute towards the, 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 the family. And, and so my parents never put pressure on me not to go, but it was almost that's what we did in, in that, uh, that part of the world at the time. And, uh, I have thought about it and uh, I, I have some regrets because I look at colleagues who did go on to university and it sounded like they had a um, hell of a lot of, lot of fun while they did it. But it didn't really hold me back. Uh, I, I did have to uh, make an effort later on to, to go and get a qualification, which is why I decided to become an accountant. Uh, but the lack of a degree at the time didn't, uh, didn't hurt me. I want to kind of uh, put another emphasis on your last kind of uh, answer. Um, so becoming a successful entrepreneur, CEO, CFO, you don't have to go to university? Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. I think, uh, uh, you know, for a time it was probably um, the preferred approach uh, because I think the, the, the wisdom of the time was that uh, you, you needed to go and get an education um, before you went into, into business. But uh, it, never, it never held me back um, um, at any point in time. That's awesome. And um, we'll talk about it uh, later. So uh, you kind of go to work with Schlumberger? That was your first job? That was my I first real job. I, I, I left school and went to, and I joined an insurance company straight out of school um, because I think they were paying an extra 200 pounds a year. Um, and uh, That's a ticket to university. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but I, I quickly realized that that was, uh, that was awful. And it's the last thing I wanted to do was to do in, insurance, uh, mm -hmm. pension administration, I think it was. And I had a, a friend who, who worked for uh, Slumberger at the time, and uh, they were looking for people. And uh, to be honest, uh, what attracted me to Slumberger, I'd never heard of them. Uh, what attracted me to, to them was that they seemed to have a, a better social life than, uh, than, than certainly the company I was with at the time. <laughs> so I went across and uh, I met, uh, I met the, uh, the, uh, my, my manager, who was to be my manager, and um, uh, they offered me the job, and uh, so I, that, that started 18 years uh, career with Slumberger. So when did you do your accounting uh, course? Uh, while I was at Slumberger. So I did it um, uh, on, on an, in the evenings and at weekends. I would take, uh, I'd go to, to school and, and do the accounting at, uh, on my, in my spare time. So you just said you don't like accounting. Why accounting? Was it an influence from someone? Was it a, like you thought that as a career path that can help you? Yes. So I, my, my first job with Slobberger, um, I was in the payroll department. So I was responsible for paying, um, doing payroll and paying expense accounts for all the international engineers. 
and they would see these massive salaries that they were getting on a monthly basis, which was <laughs> which was almost three times my my annual salary. Yeah, and I, I figured I needed to get onto this gravy boat or this gravy train, I should say. Uh, and so, talking to to the, um, my boss, my team leader, uh, who was a, a qualified accountant, I I said, you know, what do I need to do to get on and um, you know, is there a potential for someone like me to go international? And he, he, she, she was a she, and she sort of laughed. She said, well, it's always possible, but, you know, number one, you don't have uh, a degree, and uh, you don't have a qualification. So uh, you need to probably do something about that. And so um, at the same time, my, my friend who, who actually encouraged me to go uh, had started accounting um, uh, studies, and I thought, well, I, I can probably do that as well. And so... I decided to embrace that and uh, to take it on. I see. Well, we reached our first commercial break. Uh, I encourage our listeners to open a new tab and go to www.pillar4capital.com. Check their team page. Uh, find out more about Mix and his uh, three part Mick and his uh, three partners. Uh, we will meet you here on the other side of the commercial. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have a nationally known guest that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. That's D-I-V-I Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back with our guest, Mick McNulty, uh, managing partner with Pillar 4 Capital. So um, before we went into the break, uh, you told us how you got into accounting. So when did you move to Canada? So um, you, you said Gabon. You spent yeah, two years in Gabon. Yeah, I did. Yes. So I I spent my first few years in London. Uh, I got qualified as a, uh, it's a, a, a United Kingdom uh, accounting recognition um, association of uh, chartered and certified accountants. 
actually it's global, it's, it's across the, the world, but it's one of the, one of the few that was recognized in England at the time, rather than the chartered body. Um, so I got qualified, and uh, at that point, um, the, I asked about the opportunities of moving abroad with, with Slamajé, and uh, they had a, a financial position open up in Libreville, in Gabon. And uh, there I was responsible for the financial management of Slamajé's operations in Western Africa. So all the way from Ivory Coast, all the way down to South Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, so I spent my time setting up financial systems, financial reporting systems, putting in the very first computer systems, in actual fact, in, uh, in, in Africa for Slamajé. And, so, and two years in Gabon and then what? Uh, after that, I went to Aberdeen and spent two years in, in Aberdeen. Uh, Slamajé would move their people around every two to three years. So two years in Aberdeen and then came to uh, Calgary in 86 uh, and spent two years here. Left at the end of 88, uh, if you recall then, the, the old patch was was terrible, almost as bad as uh, as perhaps we saw in, in 15 or 16. And so I, I, I left here my position as an international guy was too expensive for the operation to to uh, to pay for, so they moved me back to Aberdeen, and uh, that was in '88. So I stayed there with Slumberjay until '93. Left them in '93 and joined uh, another Canadian company called um, Nelsco Wealth Services, and uh, joined them really because they were Canadian, and. Uh, I had the the idea or the ambition that I could possibly get back to Calgary because I, I loved it so much in in '86 and '88 that uh, I thought if I could get back to Calgary I'd be very very happy. So I joined them, uh, and nine months later they they, they uh, transferred me over here to the head office, and uh, that was great as far as I was concerned. <laughs> the the only problem was. Um, Nine months after I arrived, they were subject to a hostile takeover from a company called BJ Services, which eventually succeeded, yeah. and uh, BJ had no need of, of my services, and so I was out of my ear. Uh, and, and you move here, and I want to go back to something you said earlier, because I look at your resume, and I look at the research we've, we've done, and I see VP Financing Precision Drilling, CFO Saxon Energy, CEO Saxon Energy Services, Chief uh, Financial Officer, CFO at Calfrec Wealth Services. We're talking about companies that are measured in the millions or in the billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And you didn't even go to university. <laughs> what the hell? How come I can't get a job? I didn't go to university. <laughs> I think you're doing okay, David. So I, I want you to go through what is going in your mind when you see, I didn't go to university, but I see all those salaries, I know I can do it. What what did you do to make them want you to feel, fulfill those positions? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I try my best. No, I worked damn hard. Is I worked damn hard and I and I, I, I embraced what was important. I think the thing that, uh, that, that was really important for me and important for people that worked for Slumberjee back then, it was a great training ground, first and foremost. I mean, they are the largest oil for service company in the world, and they're probably the, they probably are the university uh, of uh, oil field services. So I saw what was going on around me, and the people that succeeded worked very hard to succeed. And so I realized that uh, um, I had to maybe give up a little bit of the social life 
and embrace a little bit of uh, hard work and dedication and really embracing the, the whole concept of service, what that actually meant. And so when I was, when I was sent to, to Africa, uh, it was very clear to me then I was, one of, I was just one guy at the time. There wasn't a team of accountants with me. Uh, but there I was working with operational people and they needed help. They needed uh, to understand the financials systems, they needed to understand the financial reports. And I was there to service them. And I realized very quickly that I could be part of, I could be a service group within uh, a, a very good service company. And so I adopted the need that you have to provide the best possible service you can to the people you're working with or the people you're working for. And did you try also, uh not even try, did you kind of learn what they do or or just stuck, to, stuck to your, you know, this is my, my my territory, is the numbers and you guys, you know, here's no, how I, I can help you. Absolutely, no, I, I, I made a, a strong point of actually being able to get out on the on the rigs that they were working, going into the desert uh, regions where they're working, to the jungle, going offshore in the, with the helicopters, really understanding everything it was that they were doing, even helping you know, carry tools around and, and help them put the tools together. So were you surprised when you got the first call to become a CFO of one of those companies that we mentioned earlier? No, um, I, I think when I left, uh, when I left Nelsco, I was, I was hunting around for something to do and, and even contemplated going back to, to England. Uh, and then precision drilling came along and Precision at the time was going through a, a massive growth spurt. Uh, and I think they appreciated the fact that I had some decent skills in, in information technologies, but also in working internationally. And as they were adding businesses and adding some international, potentially adding international businesses, that international experience was, was useful for them. <coughs> so I, I was able to, to grow, continue to grow, if you like, within Precision at a time that they were growing. And so I was, I was gaining skills every day that uh, was preparing me for the, for the time when I, I could become a CFO. Uh, I worked very closely with the CFO of, uh, of Precision at the time, uh, Dale Tremblay, uh, who was a, uh, a great influence on me at the time. And I, I, I think he, he, he showed me how to be a, a good CFO. And, and so when I left Precision and uh, had the opportunity to join Saxon, it was sort of the, 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 the next step for me in, in my career. But usually the headhunter or in the interview, they go, so which university did you go <laughs> at? Where's your diploma? We can't find it in the bio. How did you get beyond that point? Because I, I, I made the point that my university was in Slumberger. Mm -hmm. I, I, I did an 18 year degree in, in Slumberger. And so there was nothing I could have learned at, at school and university that uh, I could not have learned at Slumberger. In hindsight, can you be a CFO and CEO outside of the oil and gas industry? Could I be? Yeah. Or could, could an individual be? No, you. Yes. Yes. Yes, I, I, I believe I could. I think I've got transportable skills if, uh, if I wanted to do that. I see. Because you just mentioned that Schlumberger used to, used to be, or it was the university that yeah. you learned a lot, but over your career, it's oil. Only oil and gas industry, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's why I'm asking whether can you tomorrow be CEO or CFO of 
I, different I, industry. If, if, I, if I had that inclination, David, I think I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I've, I've, I'm done with the, the C-suite, <laughs> quite honestly, uh, for reasons we can probably get into later. Uh, but I, I think I have uh, the skill set to do it. I, I think I have the, the attitude of, uh, you know, of finding out about the business that I would be moving into. Um, now, would 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 I be attractive to to somebody else in another industry? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. But, uh, but I think I, I, I see. Do it. Uh, by the way, kids go to university. <laughs> kids listening to this program go to university. Um, you can have a great time be, at university. Yeah. <laughs> and not just for the good time. <laughs> so you have a great career, uh, many years in the C-suite, uh, CEO, CFO. And then all of a sudden you decide to live this and become an entrepreneur at not at a young age, in a kind of a more advanced age. Mm-hmm. What happened? Did you have an accident? Did you fall from the bed from bed one day? <laughs> <laughs> no, I went through the downturn uh, of 2015 and uh, and 16. No, I mean I, I, I got to a point uh, that you know, in this downturn, it was clear to me that this was this was going to be an extended downturn. And I am in the um, the later years of, of my working career. And although I, I don't regret a single moment of, of what I'd done before, I, I just felt that there was there was other other things I could do and other things and, and other ways that I could help. And in particular, I've always been impressed with uh, the entrepreneurs. In my time at uh, Precision, we, we did a, over 25 or 30 uh, acquisitions. And most of those, not all of them, but a lot, most of those were small acquisitions of entrepreneurial companies. And there was always something very interesting and uh, uh, amazing about these guys that had gone out and built these small companies um, with their you know, sweat off their brow, uh, all the savings that they had and uh, build these companies into something that uh, they could be proud of and eventually sell at a, at a, good, mar- a good profit to, to companies like Precision. And, and I felt that uh, if I could, I wasn't gonna go out and start my own company per se and start building widgets for the, for the oil field, but I felt that uh, there was potentially an opportunity of working with some of these entrepreneurs and help mentor them and help them grow their companies so that they, they could uh, Fulfill their ambition and, yeah. and 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 make make some decent money. Any naysayers saying, "What are you out of your mind? You're in the C-suite. You're going to risk everything." Um, no, I, I don't. Think, maybe some people said it behind my back. <laughs> we don't care about those. Uh, but my wife was was totally supportive. Uh, my 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 family were totally totally supportive. Cherchez la Yeah, exactly. And uh, I I think that. Um, it, it, they, they felt that uh, this was something I wanted to do, and therefore, why, why, why not give it the opportunity? And, and it wasn't much fun in the C-suite anymore. Yeah. And today, I, it's not a lot of fun in the C-suite. Yeah. There is a lot of stress and a lot of aggravation that you face being a CEO or a CFO today. Which no entrepreneur has. Which an entrepreneur <laughs> does. He does. But it's self-imposed in a lot of ways. And he's not answering to um, a set of faceless investors that... Uh, you know, have no, no clue what he does or yeah. really don't care what he does. Yeah. Um, 
that was the thing I think that I found frustrating when you when you CEO of a of a public company. What was the draw to join uh, f- uh, Pillar Four? Because I understand the company started a year before you joined. Uh, probably about six months. Um, oh, they uh, it was people I know, people mm-hmm. that I've uh, met in the business and have trusted. Uh, People I've gone to to soccer games with, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and and people that that are like-minded to to me, and I liked what the idea of what they were coming up with, and I think that whereas uh, my three partners, uh, different uh, different backgrounds to myself, uh, two of them are investment bankers, one is a research analyst uh, by background, uh, I had the uh, on the ground industrial knowledge if you like and so it, it was a good mesh with the skill sets that they brought to the table and um, you know you mentioned a couple of times that the industry is going through some tough time in the last three or four years was that the right time to start such a private equity yes and no okay yes because it's a great time to actually uh, find those companies that have managed to weather the storm um, who need uh, equity or capital to grow and And, uh, and and companies like our firms like ours that can provide them the, some some uh, non-financial support as well uh, bad from the standpoint that as you know in private equity you're raising money from um, lot lots of individuals and most of our network were people in the industry in the <laughs> energy industry and they've been badly hit so being able to raise money was was very very difficult and it's probably as difficult as any time and Uh, but finding good opportunities to invest in it was a good time so let's talk about uh, the partnership for a second yeah um, how does it work is it uh, you know you rule by majority it's a unanimous decision-making process um, how do you decide which project to go for which project to dump uh, which one you don't want even to want to touch I, I would say that uh, we we um, we generally reach an unanimous uh, decision uh, it's not to say that uh, Uh, we couldn't get to a situation where it was majority but well, there are four partners and uh, four very different perspectives we all have you know different experiences and we come with a different point of view but I think the one thing that uh, I can say about um, all of us is that we listen to reasoned arguments and if if someone is vehemently opposed to doing something there's a very good reason for that and so it makes sense to listen to what they have to say and So if three people uh, want to do something and one is really opposing and does he have a veto or no I think if we got to that situation where three were, were strongly in favor and one was not uh, we, we have the luxury of an advisory board of um, 11 12 individuals that are uh, very very experienced in in the uh, of build and energy space and if we got to that situation we would lean heavily on our advisory board and And we'll be very upfront with them that uh, three of us wanted to do this and this individual did not want to do it and I think we would uh, lay out the, our, our reasons and uh, and then listen to what our advisory board would have to say um, I have one question before we go to the second commercial break um, do you guys have mission vision purpose that you all agreed on um, I, I don't think we've actually I mean we do have a we, we have a marketing document that we put out and we talk about what it is that uh, we're trying to achieve we don't have a mission statement per se uh, what we do believe is that uh, we, we believe in in uh, industry entrepreneurs and we want to invest in industry entrepreneurs that are trying to build their companies mm-hmm. and um, 
you don't think that a mission, vision, purpose as you grow will be something you need? You know, I think it's something, as the larger the company, uh, company or firm grows, then perhaps it becomes more important because the, the beauty of a mission statement is that it, it, it brings everybody together. So everybody can, can actually identify with what you're trying to achieve. When it's four partners and, and a couple of principles, it's very easy for them to understand what our mission is and what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. As you get bigger, I think then actually writing it down and putting it up on the wall is, 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 is what's required then. Perfect. So we reached our second commercial break. Once again, during our commercial break, open a new tab and uh, check uh, Pillar4Capital.com. Go to the About page and find out more about the four pillars of investment strategy. And we will be back with you immediately following the, following the commercial. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have a nationally known guest that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. That's D-I-V-I-Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back for the home stretch of today's Taking Care of Business with our guest, uh, Mick McNulty, Managing Partner at Pillar 4 Capital. Um, before we went to, to the break, we talked about the mission, vision, and you said that right now as, as four partners, uh, you don't see that. But, but what are the challenges a new company like yours in an industry that is struggling, facing right now? What are the challenges? What are you focused on? Uh, to make it happen, because a lot of entrepreneurs have that, you know, one, two year kind of very unsettled time as a, as a y- business. Y- yes, indeed. In fact, probably the biggest challenge for everybody right now is where do they sell their wares? And um, it's a tough market in Canada. Even if you have the best uh, tool in the marketplace. Uh, who's going to buy it? 
the market in Canada is actually quite small. So for us, the focus is, is on Canadian-grown companies, uh, currently anyway, it's on Canadian-grown companies. And we're looking for those organizations that have the ability to, to export their, their, their products, their, their tools to other markets. In particular, the US is the one that's right on our doorstep. Mm -hmm. And of course, trying to grow in the US is not easy either. A lot of Canadian companies have attempted that and, and failed miserably. Uh, companies that I that I know well, in fact, that have right. not done well there. So it's that's probably the the biggest challenge is how do we how do we access these markets in in uh, in the U.S. and uh, in the case of one of our portfolio companies today, they're they're expanding into the Middle East and uh, the North Sea as well. So those are those are huge challenges for companies, and that's where we lean upon the experience that that I have. Uh, one of my partners, Paul Colucci, is uh, based in London. So he has uh, he has some insight in terms of uh, working over in um, the Middle East and uh, and the North Sea, but certainly for for entrepreneurs, it's about how do I get my product to market and then how do I make it meaningful, and it's all about where you sell it. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, in the partnership you have two guys that are investment bankers. You have one guy that is a research analyst yeah. and yourself with more field and, and accounting as we know. <laughs> do you have job description for each one of you? How does how do you kind of divide the work and the responsibilities? Yeah, no, we don't have job descriptions. Um, we have, you know, I think in terms of our, our skill sets, they, they, they're, they're very different. Even the two investment bankers and Paul Colucci is investment banker with 20 years experience spent uh, the last few years in, in uh, London. Uh, Matt Colucci is a 12-year uh, investment banker and he spent uh, most, of his most of his time, although there was a short stint in London, most of his time has been spent here in, in Calgary. So Matt has a very deep knowledge of uh, a lot of the private, uh, as well as the public companies in the space in, in Canada. Paul has a very good uh, understanding of the, some of the players in the international space. Dana is a research analyst by trade, and so he has a lot of macro knowledge, if you like, about the industry. So what we find is, is that we each have, bring something to the table every time we're looking uh, at, at a company. We're all coming at it with a slightly different perspective. Uh, I, of course, am coming at it from a, uh, a business sense, uh, and Dana is, Dana is definitely coming at it from an analytical sense, uh, from a macro piece in terms of how it would fit into the overall uh, industry. And um, Paul is, is extremely strong, as is Matt, on, on how we structure deals. Mm -hmm. And structuring deals is, is, is critical as well. Uh, especially as entrepreneurs, you know, they built this from the, from the ground up, typically, uh, with their own sweat yeah. and their own equity, and now uh, they want to do a deal with the devil, yeah. private equity, the evil private equity. Uh, for them, it, it's very important how we structure the deal to, to make sure we protect the interests of our investors, but also don't uh, don't don't deter the, the entrepreneurs from, from what they do best, which is running and growing businesses. How do you hold each other accountable? Because as you know, time kills deals. If someone is slacking during due diligence process, uh, how do you guys hold each other accountable? You know, um, 
Oh, you're pausing. I am pausing because <laughs> when I think about it, uh, I think we, we're holding, we hold ourselves accountable. Mm -hmm. uh, we're all high performers in our own way. And so we never want to be the guy holding a deal up. I mean, if, if, if somebody could turn around and say, well, Mick, we've been waiting on that uh, financial analysis now for three days, that would like be a spear through my heart. So I think we're all, we, we, we hold ourselves accountable and in doing so, um, you know, we, we live up to everybody else's expectations. I see. I want to take a short, I would say, break or a shortcut to a, 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 another angle of business in, in your past. Mm -hmm. And uh, in our research, uh, I found that uh, you were involved when you were CEO of Saxon with a health program. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to tell you elaborate about that health program that you guys implemented at uh, Saxon. Uh, you talk about the health and safety and environmental program. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's a it's a very good question uh, because as a as a financial guy, you don't typically get a lot of exposure to uh, uh, HSE. Uh, but I talked earlier about the whole service approach, and in in the energy industry, um, HSE is critical. You will not succeed as a company unless you have a strong HSE program, which is health, health, safety, safety and environment. environment. And uh, Saxon was a startup company. We started off from you know from humble beginnings uh, with some rigs in in South America. And uh, grew grew that by adding rigs in in uh, the U.S. and then in Canada uh, and other parts of, of South America, Colombia, uh, and then into into the Middle East. And uh, in any of those areas where you're working, you need to have a, a strong HSE program. And I, I was a CEO. But I'm surrounded by some of the, the best, uh, I was surrounded by some of the best operational people you could hope to have. Uh, but I went out of my way and I hired a, a gentleman that I worked with at, uh, at Slumberger, who was for me uh, the, the most knowledgeable HSC guy that I uh, had the pleasure to work with. And so by bringing him in, uh, he was he was the architect of, of that system that uh, that we implemented. I want to uh, kind of uh, put an emphasis on the health program, which yeah. is internal. The environmental is external to do good for the environment as an oil and gas company, right. and safety, of course, is a must in an industry that is so uh, you know uh, dangerous. dangerous yeah. But the health program, the internal health program. What kind of impact did it make on, on the workforce, on, on employees and, and, and performance? Well, I think every employee wants to feel that they are being looked after by their employer. Uh, and, and so you do that in, in a number of different ways. You do it through financial incentives and uh, financial reward, but, uh, but also making sure that they have the, um, a decent uh, health program to, to rely upon because the majority of these guys are, are, have families and they're going to work every day and uh, they're doing so for the good of their families and they want to make sure that uh, the, their families are well looked after. And so uh, health programs are, are essential. And was there kind of, did you see, uh, you know, performance getting better, people, your, your premium, your health premium went down? What, what kind of uh, feedback did you get from the health program? I, I think it was a combination of things. I, I think the, the fact that we had uh, a comprehensive uh, health, safety, and environmental program was 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 critical. 
certainly our, our statistics improves substantially over time. And, uh, and I, I wouldn't put it down specifically just to the health program. I put it down to the no. fact that we were putting in place all three, all three of those uh, elements. I see. Um, let's go back to Mick. Okay. Indeed. And being a CFO for big companies, being a CEO, uh, how would you describe your leadership style? Oh, that's a good I'm not asking well. other people how will they describe <laughs> Mick's style. I want to see how Mick is describing your, your, your own style. It's, it's, a, it's a, a very good question. And uh, I would have to tell you that I, I had to adapt my style when I became CEO. Because when you're a CFO, uh, you, can, you, can, you can have a certain style of, of leadership. Uh, and and it can, you can be successful. When you become a CEO, uh, I described it that uh, as a CFO, probably 25% of my job was, was dealing with people. When you're a CEO, 95% of your job is dealing with people. So basically a CEO is also VP of HR. It has to be <laughs> VP of HR. And so you have, to, you have to adapt what you're saying. When you're a CFO, you can, you can speak your mind. And you know, there's, that's the accounting, accountant in him talking. When you're CEO, you've got to be very careful of what you say. Uh, so I would describe my style as I, I, beca- I had to become... Initially, I became too cautious and, and was actually criticized by being too cautious in terms of being a leader. And uh, I, was, I was helped in that with uh, um, the coach, a coach, a good friend of ours, uh, who, who, uh, who helped, uh, helped mentor me through that point in terms of, yes, you have to be cautious, but you also have to be a leader and you have to be seen to be taking decisions. So you have to listen. You have to listen to people's point of view. But clearly a decision has to be made at the end of the day, and you have to be responsible for that decision. And so I, I think I did adapt my, my leadership skills to, to be inclusive, to be uh, a good listener, uh, but also not to waste time on too much analysis and to make a decision and then live with the consequences of that decision. So, Mick, we're getting uh, very close to the end of the show. It's, time flies when you're having it fun, does, right? Yes. So, I have a few questions to kind of uh, summarize the whole thing. Um, what keeps you awake at night? You know, today, I would say I'm, I'm in a pretty good place. Um, you know, I, if, we're, if we're working on a deal, then obviously, you know, thinking about the consequences of, of, of deals will, will keep me awake for a night or two. But uh, it, I, I don't stay awake day the same way I did when I was uh, when I was a CEO or a CFO, and um, there it was often about things that that I had no control over, which made it even worse. Because when <laughs> being awake, if you're awake and you can actually start thinking about your solutions, is one thing. But uh, yeah. when you're lying awake and there's nothing you can, in the damn world you can do about it, then yeah. it's uh, it's problematic. Uh, how do you measure your success or success? You know, that's again a very very interesting question. Uh, I think it's, I've always measured my success in terms of uh, respect that I, that I can garner from other people. Uh, I, I'm not measuring success in terms of you know, how much money I think we can make uh, in Pillar 4. I think it's, uh, can, I, can I retire from this, uh, this business and, and be respected by the people that I've done business with? Not everybody will, will respect me, but I, I would hope that uh, on the score sheet, uh, there are more people that respected me than, than <laughs> I'm sure there are, knowing you. 
if if you were sitting now across from a new entrepreneur, what a piece, one or two pieces of advice from your experience will give you will give a new entrepreneur if you have to if you had to mentor that person? Well, one of the things I always tell them is, don't forget the accounting. <laughs> a lot of guys don't don't think it's worthwhile spending money on having a good accountant, but get a good accountant, and he will keep you out of jail. <laughs> Okay. Uh, the, 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 the second thing is... Uh, get, get ready for jail by <laughs> working out. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, think, I think the second thing is, is that uh, focus your attention. Uh, too often entrepreneurs will have so many ideas and they want, to try and, uh, they want to try and be successful with every single one of those ideas. It's important, I think, to focus on those two or three that are going to have the most impact and stay focused upon those until they, they, you, are, you are successful there. And then you could, the others will, could, will come along afterwards. As you start to grow, as you add more people, you can, uh, you can achieve some of those other goals. But very often, guys just have too many things, too many things they're chasing at the same time. What have you learned about yourself in this long journey from the east, southeast London to the C-suite to becoming an entrepreneur? Uh, there, there's no there's no substitute for, for hard work. Uh, you, you need to work hard. Uh, some people are, I guess, they're blessed with with great uh, uh, ingenuity and, uh, and talent. Uh, I don't think I was. I had to, to work hard uh, at school and uh, uh, for, for my exams and, and uh, within the companies I work for. Uh, but I think you've also got to have fun. If if you're not having fun then it's probably not worth it in the end. I see. <laughs> it's a perfect ending. One last question. Was Churchill the prime minister when you were born? <laughs> we just watched The Darkest Hour, my wife and I. I, I think he probably was. <laughs> was it Gary Oldham or Churchill? Who was <laughs> uh, We reached the end of today's episode of Taking Care of Business. I want to thank my guest, uh, Mick McNulty, managing partner at Pillar 4 Capital, for sharing your fascinating story of how, we can, how can one achieve great success with hard work, determination, and out-of-the-box thinking. Next week, we will have a new guest sharing their experience and life as an entrepreneur. I would love to hear from you. My, uh, feedback me at uh, dvwallach at gmail.com. Email me at dvwallach at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, like us on Facebook, and connect with me on LinkedIn. I'll meet you here next Tuesday at www.voiceamerica.com variety, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific. Your host, David Wallach. Thank you for listening to Taking Care of Business. Please join David Wallach again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we talk again, make your week as great as you want it.